Good morning, beautiful people. Welcome to the Michael Slate Show. This is Sansara Taylor, your guest host. Today, we're going to bring you a special program from the archives of the Michael Slate Show. Back in 2014, Michael Slate interviewed Ilan Pape, an Israeli historian and the author of many works, including The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. This has renewed relevance today in the context of the powerful film Farah, which is now streaming on Netflix, and the frenzied attacks on it by the Israeli government and the usual band of U.S. Zionists. The interview was conducted during a genocidal Israeli assault on an outdoor prison called Gaza. The horrors then inflicted on the Palestinians are echoed in almost daily videos on social media of the cold-blooded murder of unarmed Palestinians carried out by the Israeli army and rabid gangs of fascist so-called settlers to this day. This is a powerful truth that some try hard to cover up, but many more are simply ignoring. So for this reason, we are bringing you back this extraordinary interview from Michael Slate with Ilan Pape. Ilan Pape is a historian, and John Pilger once described him as Israel's bravest, most principled, most incisive historian. And the point is, the fact is, is that Ilan Pape has, has spent his life trying to tell the truth in a fearless search for truth and bringing that truth out to people about what is going on, not just what's going on in relation to Israel and the Zionist government and the Palestinian people, but in relation to much bigger questions as well, I think, in terms of crimes against humanity and the idea that these should never, not only never be forgotten, but there's a moral imperative for everyone to stand up and speak out. And that's what Ilan has been doing. That's what he spent his life doing. So I'm really happy to welcome him to the show. Ilan, welcome to the Michael Slate Show. It's a great pleasure to be on your show, Michael. Great, great. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Well, you know, I should tell people too that as people are listening, I want them to write this down. Now, I know you have a couple of books out. A lot of articles, people can read your articles often on electronic intifada. But this book, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, is a really important book for people to get, for people to dig into. And it has a lot to do with what we're going to be talking about today. But once again, Israel has launched a full-scale war against the people of Gaza, as I was saying. Can you give us a sort of up-to-the-minute, like right now, what, what is happening in Gaza as we talk? Yes. Uh, as, as far as we know, of course, there's a bit of fog, but... The, the picture is quite clear. In the last 24 hours, uh, Israeli ground forces have entered uh, the Strip with tanks, uh, heavy guns, and so on, and uh, systematically, as we speak, destroying uh, the margins of the urban space of uh, Gaza in different uh, places. Uh, and um, it seems that they would not be content with just doing that. They probably go, will go deeper into the various cities that make uh, the Gaza Strip. And they're still using a lot of power from the air and from the sea. And just in the last few hours, we heard of a hospital and some other places that uh, people thought would, be, would shelter them because they obeyed the Israeli orders to leave their houses also were bombed by the Israelis, and the number of casualties is rising, including quite a high number of children among them. Ilan, mm. tell me this. If you look at it in general, you might say, okay, there's a, they're just raining bombs down on Gaza and on the Palestinian people. And at the same time, 
to hit things like hospitals and to, as we've heard in other reports, where they have actually been calling people up and saying, leave, we're going to attack your building or your, your, where you are right now. There's this insane kind of very savage combination of, you know, clinical precision and blatant outright savagery. It's not just a question of, uh, you know, carrying out a war. There's really an element of terrorizing the entire population. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I, I agree. There is uh, an element of, it's a sinister uh, approach. And this kind of uh, brutality was always there. I think this is something that may have been missing from some of the analyses in the reports, that there's a certain aspect for Israeli uh, actions that uh, is different may, maybe from many other atrocities that are going on even as we speak in other parts of the world. It is this righteousness that accompanies this and the pretense that this is done in the name of high values of enlightenment, democracy, and so on. And actually, the high level of technology is used to terrorize people. I think you're absolutely right. I, I don't know if your listeners were able to, to see, because I'm sure American uh, mainstream media does not show this, but... Um, when the Israelis sort of give a warning for some of the houses, they give you 57 seconds to leave the house. Now, try and be on the fifth floor in any part of the world and leave in 57 seconds. This is ridiculous. It is as cruel as a technique as the very destruction of the house and the killing of the people in it. It's a rare combination of high-tech, a very uh, extremist ideology in, in many ways, and a long, long period of dehumanization of the two million people, almost two million people, who are incarcerated in this big ghetto, and their only crime is being Palestinian. Mm -hmm. You know, I read somewhere where you were talking about how this all falls out on children, too, and I was thinking about that as I heard both the sum total so far of the number of children dead as a result of all this, but also the really heartbreaking things about the kids playing on the roof, the kids on the beach, and this whole idea of terrorizing the population. And, and actually, in a certain sense, really, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's terrorizing in a certain sense. Humanity as a whole, in terms of you're looking at, it's the dehumanization of the people that gets concentrated up in the children, which seems to be a particular aspect of what Israel does to the Palestinian people. Well, I think that I'm not sure whether they target uh, children as such, but uh, I think there's something more important going on here. It's, it's a combination of three factors. One is, uh, I call it the laboratory or the lab, the lab factor. The urban space of Gaza is a lab for the Israeli military industry to and, and other military industries, probably also in the United States, to experiment with new weapons. There was a terrifying film that uh, was shown, I think, in Sundance called The Lab by a director who showed how these actions in Gaza and elsewhere in the West Bank are used as, uh, as a test, test cases that are being filmed in order to show them later to prospective buyers of these weapons because clients would be most convinced when you show them that the weapons were actually used against human beings, not against puppets or dummies. So that's one factor which makes it so horrible. And then, of course, you don't differentiate between women, men, young men, warriors, or, or children. The second one is the, the dehumanization, the, this idea that the Palestinians are the enemy, 
whether it's a village, whether it's a house, whether it's a kindergarten, it's the face of the enemy. The enemy that you only see through the eyes of the military gun or aircraft or ship. And it becomes a legitimate military target. And on top of it, on top of it, you have this self-confidence that you're doing a pharmaceutical, surgical <laughs> operation because you have such a sophisticated high-tech, you know? It's obscene. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, it's obscene. In, in, uh, it would have been bad enough without this righteousness and this kind of self-explanatory mechanism which says we are so technically advanced that we can be surgical and so on, where the, the uh, results on the ground show that there's nothing to it. It's a barbaric action like any barbaric action against uh, unarmed civilians. But this righteousness, this, this kind of sense that you are so, somehow morally unique in the way you do it, regardless that in the end of the day, the 50 to 100 dead children, uh, I think makes it even worse in a way from an, uh, a moral uh, and ethical point of view. Mm-hmm. Let me remind listeners that you're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and we're talking today with Ilan Pape. Ilan's a professor of history at Exeter College in Britain, and he's the author of numerous books on Palestine and the Middle East, including The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Now, Ilan, one of the things when I was actually talking about with the children, too, it's, it, it seems, though, I, and I understand what you're saying, but they're not specifically targeting. I really appreciate your, your answer on that. I was also thinking, though, too, there is a way that they terrorize the entire population. And one of the things, even aside, stepping back away from the, whether it's the bombs and the missiles falling, but even the idea that I read in an interview you did a couple years ago with the International Solidarity Movement, you talked about that the children are specifically taught. You, you talk about this heartbreaking yeah, scene yeah. of people going into a courtroom and seeing Palestinian child after child in chains and, and in orange jumpsuits. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're, you're right. You're right to point out to it. I mean, so it's not the targeting of the children as, as specifically in this operation, but there's a certain horrific perception of what is a Palestinian child. And uh, it goes back to 1948, you've mentioned my book, The Ethnic Cleansing in Palestine, in which I described the Israeli operations in 1948. And one of the things I mentioned there is that uh, were the orders that the troops, the Israeli troops, received before occupying either a neighborhood in the town or uh, a village. And uh, the, the orders said that men of fighting age should be separated from the rest of the population either killed or sent to prisons. Now, the uh, troops wanted to know how do you define a man of a fighting age. And that's back in 48, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it said, uh, the army orders say very clearly, anyone above the age of 10. So the, they included in it those who potentially can be men, right? Mm-hmm. They knew that someone who's 10 years old is not a man, right? And I think it began there that children are potential terrorists, they're potential enemies, they're not just uh, children. And I think that brought the scene that you quoted from my article some years ago about the children's court. We, we have special courts for children, where sometimes the whole class is brought in, shackled as if they are mass murderers. It also reminds me in 2002, where the Israeli army had this habit of a midnight tank tour in the refugee camp of Jenin at midnight that terrified the children there and sort of really disturbed for, for years to come a whole generation of children. Uh, but, but I think the key is the dehumanization. 
the dehumanization, this, I, this ability now, and you can hear it in the Israeli media and those in America who support Israel, it's to talk about Gaza as if it's a battlefield, as if all you have there is a desert and you have tank brigades facing each other, uh, and not understanding that you're talking on a, the most densely populated urban space in the world. So any movement with a tank, any bomb from the air, any shell by a gunboat brings mass destruction. It's, it's ridiculous to, to talk about surgical precision uh, or any humane consideration in this operation. Mm-hmm. Now, Ilan, you've talked about this situation today being an incremental genocide. And it seems to me that you're saying that there's been a qualitative leap in what's going on. And I want to talk with you about that because... It's also related to what we're talking about in relation to Gaza and what they're doing in this sense, too, that the particularities of the Gaza Strip make it clear that any collective punitive action, and I think this is something you've said, like what's going on now, could only be an operation of massive killing and destruction, a continued genocide. So is this a leap in the, uh, in the situation as you see it? It's, it's always with this case, with Israeli policy, it's a small leap in terms of numbers of troops used, numbers of people targeted, numbers of people killed. But it's a bit worse than the previous one, and you can imagine that the next one would be even worse. It began in 2006. I mean, uh, we have to remember how it also began, even in the short term, let alone the you know the more general historical context. It began when, in 2006, in a way encouraged by the American kind of pro- discourse and propaganda about democracy, Palestinians went uh, to the polling station in January 2006 and, and thought that they were really uh, spearheading democracy uh, in the Middle East, and they chose the government. And the reaction of Israel, with the help of the United States, was to ghettoize them without any way of getting in or getting out and slowly cutting their uh, rations of food and, and strangulating them. And it was very clear that even if you don't bomb Gaza, every two years from the air, the sea, and the land, you are creating a situation uh, in terms of human conditions that in the long run by itself can turn into a genocide, let alone when in four waves since 2006 you use Merkava tanks, which are the most ferocious tanks in the world, F-16, Apache helicopters, naval gunships, and phosphorus bombs, by the way, all of them made in the United States. I should say to your listeners, uh, all these horrible lethal weapons have been used four times on top of the strangulation, the starvation, since 2006 as a punishment for exercising democracy. It's unbelievable if you think about it. I mean, the, the, the naked truth about Palestine is infuriating, the way it is being you know, reported elsewhere. And I think... This is why uh, I call it incremental genocide, because you can see that combination of the military power on the, on the one hand and that narrative that somehow legitimizes in the West this ghettoization of almost two million people. What else, how else can it end if not with a massive destruction of the Gaza Strip? Mm-hmm. Let me remind listeners that you're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and we're talking today with Ilan Pape. Ilan's a professor of history at Exeter College in Britain, and he's the author of numerous books on Palestine and the Middle East, including The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. 
Now you said too, and this is very, very, and this really grabbed me because you said that this particular term, incremental genocide, is important because it locates savage acts by Israel within an important and wider context. And you argue that this has to be insisted upon if people want to talk about this. And why is that so important? Why is it so important that people actually understand that this, you know, this particular term's importance? Uh, I, yes, for me, it was very important to say this because. Israel every now and then gets the green light from the West to do what it does. And every time after such a wave, eventually, is being absolved from any condemn, real condemnation or is not held accountable for what is going on. And the reason is that they succeed in selling a narrative which says, we did what we did as a reaction to the last Palestinian action in this ghetto of Gaza, namely... Because they launched missiles against Israel, we did what we did, so how can you not justify us? And immediately you will hear President Obama says Israel has the right to defend itself, and all the leaders of the Western uh, world would follow suit. But this is taking out of context. It's, it's almost like you watch a clip of a person hitting someone in the face, and the person who was hit in the face uh, shoots the guy who hits him. And you say, well, he was right that maybe to shoot him because the guy was hitting. You don't see the early bits of the, of the tip. This was the last punch that this person was able to give because he was outnumbered by six hooligans who were beating him to death. This is what I mean. You need to see the whole picture to also understand where the Palestinian rockets come from. Why do they come uh, the way they come into, into Israel? And this is so true, even if you just widen, that's what I meant in my article, even if you widen the Cumbria a little bit, not to 1948, not even to 1967, which I think is even more important, but even if you widen it to three or four weeks ago, and you see that Israel arrested all the Hamas elected members of parliament and re-arrested all the people it had pledged to liberate or, or release, I'm sorry, from jail, according to the prisoner exchange deal it has signed, it has signed, you can see who started this, this uh, uh, prison crisis. But it goes deeper into the question which I raise in my article, that while the Israelis think that they know what they're doing in the West Bank, they think that they can divide the West Bank into two parts, one part that will annex to Israel, and the rest they will enclave, maybe even call it a state, or hope that the people somehow would be attached or uh, expelled to Jordan. They can't do the same in the Gaza Strip because of geopolitical uh, situation there. So, so they're faced with an area which is locked. And what they want is to forget about it. They really want to, to throw the key of, the, of, the, of this huge prison into the sea. But the inmates, so to speak, rebel. And when they rebel, they use this lethal combination I've talked about, uh, of tanks, helicopters, F-16, gunships, and the most horrific repertoire of new kinds of weapons we don't even know of as a punishment for people's unwillingness to live forever in a situation of a ghetto. Mm -hmm. Now, Ilan, you've spoken about how the Zionist state can only really exist or materialize without any significant... It, it can only do that. It can only exist or materialize if there is not any significant number of Palestinian people in it. Now, one argument upon which the Zionist state has been built is that when, when they, they first came there, when they first found the land, that it was a, a land without people for a people without land. 
Another argument was that the Palestinians actually voluntarily left Palestine in order to facilitate an invasion by Arab military forces in preparation or after the British mandate ended. What's the truth here? I want people to understand. Let's dig a little bit into this background, and I have a few questions about that. But what's yeah. the truth here? What did Palestine look like before the Zionists established the state of Israel? What was really happening? Yes, well, uh, it's, it's, a good, it's a good point. On the eve of the arrival of the first Zionist settler in the late uh, 19th century, uh, Palestine was a thriving uh, part of the Ottoman Empire. It had towns that were flourishing with vital cultural and social activity. It had a very uh, fertile uh, countryside. Uh, we don't know exactly the number of people who were there. Uh, I think there were between half a million and three-quarter of a million, which is the numbers there were in the world in the late 19th century are not our numbers today. So it was a sizable, significant number of people living there. Like everyone else who lived on the Ottoman Empire, they had both allegiance to the empire itself, but also a local kind of identity, uh, which was uh, recognized by the special dialect that they spoke, by the connection uh, with people, and uh, a kind of affiliation to the heritage of the place. So it was not a land without people. It was land with the people. And by the time the Zionists got there, which is the late 19th century, like everywhere else in the Arab world, they began to think about themselves in national terms, as a national movement that wanted to turn their homeland into either a part of a huge nation-state, which would be an Arab republic, with the, which the colonialist powers did not allow in the end of the day, or a nation-state like the neighboring nation-states of Iraq, of Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, uh, and Egypt. So, so that's for this mythology that uh, Palestine uh, was empty. By the way, uh, the Zionist uh, leaders, those who were the core uh, leadership, knew that the land was not empty. They mm -hmm. knew very well, and they uh, envisaged a land without people, knowing that there were people on the land. The question was how to, how would the people, in the words of the prophet of the Zionist movement, Theodor Herzl, he said, can we find a way of spiriting away the people from this country? And they found a way. They uh, eventually, in 1948, found a way in uh, massively expelling the people. So that's the other myth, mm -hmm. that people somehow who live in a place for hundreds of years would voluntarily take their things and get out just in order to enable the return of the Jews if they were Christian Zionists. This is ridiculous. And for years, Palestinians told us, Palestinian refugees, Palestinian survivors from 1948 told us that they were physically expelled. But the world did not believe the Palestinians. But since the 1980s, we have solid documentary evidence for the planning, for the implementation, village to village, town to town, for the ethnic cleansing operation. Uh, and I must say that today most Israelis are not even shocked by this, and therefore it's in a way easier to speak about it. They see it as a justified uh, act for building the Jewish state instead of the uh, instead of Palestine. Let me remind listeners that you're tuned into the Michael Slate Show, and we're talking today with Ilan Pape. Ilan's a professor of history at Exeter College in Britain, and he's the author of numerous books on Palestine and the Middle East, including The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. And we're talking today about, uh, you know, basically what is going on there, how to view that, what it looks like, what's behind it, and we're going to get into very soon sort of what's it all based on, what's the past, what's the history of all this, which I think is very important for people to understand. Now, Ilan, 
Let's jump into this a little bit deeper because this this point about ethnic cleansing, I mean, it's really something people have to understand this. This isn't just another, you know, people's narrative or an assertion. It's an actual real scientific assessment, ethnic cleansing. Let's talk about this. How do you define ethnic yeah. cleansing and why was it necessary from the standpoint of the Zionists? Yeah. Let me first say that I, uh, in order to be on a safe ground, I decided to look for a source that would define from, for me the concept uh, legally and morally in a way that at least the vast majority of the people would say, okay, this is a, a credible or at least a mainstream source. So I went to the website of the um, State Department. I did the same with the terminology of ethnic cleansing. And the website of the State Department defines very clearly ethnic cleansing as an act where you have two ethnic groups and one ethnic group is determined to purify this mixed area by every means possible. In fact, the State Department website, and this is something that international jurists agree upon, that they say that even if people left because they were frightened from a mixed area, not allowing them to come back is an act of ethnic cleansing. So even the Israeli narrative that argues with me and says, no, no, we didn't intend to expel them, they just ran away, it does not absolve them from the, the crime of ethnic cleansing. Because even if people left because they were frightened, not allowing them to come back home is an act of ethnic uh, cleansing, as I stated. So if you have an ideological movement that in 1948 faces a reality by which its own ethnic group is only 30% of the population, and 70% of the population are the native indigenous people of Palestine. And it sees that population to the last person in it as a threat to its survival, to its ability to create a pure Jewish state, and is determined to use every possible means to achieve this purity, then the movement itself is committed to the ideology of ethnic cleansing. And the first proof of this came in 1948, but it didn't end in 1948. Israel found out from 1948 onwards until today that the two means of achieving this ethnic purity, one is, of course, directly expelling people, as they did in 1948, and not in small numbers after 1967. 300,000 Palestinians were expelled from the West Bank by force by Israel. But the other means, much more popular, and much more favorable from an Israeli's point of view after 48 was not to allowing people to move, to leave, to expand. They have to be enclaved, to stay in enclaves like Bantustans. And if they are there, uh, although they are physically within the state of Israel, they don't have to be counted demographically. So they're not part of the community of citizens. They don't have rights. They are citizenless citizens. Gaza is the worst uh, example of that, of course. Uh, it's much better to be in Ramallah, uh, in the West Bank, than in Gaza. But it's the, same, it's the same principle. What do we do when we think that we can only exist without having any Palestinians among us, but half of the population insists on being Palestinian? They remain Palestinians. So your whole preoccupation as a state, as an ideological movement, as a military establishment is with this demographic reality. Mm -hmm. Most of Israel's strategy evolves around what they call the demographic question, which is a horrible thought if you think that 
Zionism speaks in the name of the victims of Nazism. And what was the main obsession of Nazism? It was the demography of the Jews, the existence of the Jews demographically within the realm of, of Nazi Germany. That the, those who speak in the names of these victims are using demography as the main way, main principal way of describing or assessing whether they are secure or not is more than irony. It's, it's, uh, it's macabre. Exactly. All right, Elan, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in about a minute and a half, something like that. So stay on the line, and we'll be uh, digging okay. back into this, all right? You're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and I'm your host, Michael Slate, and we're talking today with Elan Pape, professor of history at Exeter in Britain and the author of The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. And we're talking today about the background to all that's going on today, the, what, what's happening today, what are the interests behind it, what is it all based on, all that. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back. And that song is Janine by Gilad Asman and the Orient House Ensemble. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful song. And it's all about the Janine refugee camp in the West Bank. And this song was made in reference to a Zionist raid on the Janine refugee camp. It has to be more than 10 years ago now. But again, a beautiful, beautiful song. Ilan, welcome back. Uh, glad to be again there. Well, you know, we were talking about ethnic cleansing, and you were making some very important points in relation to comparing and contrasting what's going on with Israel today and what's going on, what the Nazis were using as the excuse to get rid of the uh, the Jewish people back during the Holocaust. Now, there's something I wanted to make clear to people. It seems like it might be, you know, obvious, but I don't think so. You know, and the fact is, is that there is no debate about whether or not ethnic cleansing is actually a crime against humanity, a war crime. There's no question. It's not like, okay, as Obama has been trying to say, well, it's all, the whole situation is tragic and both sides have to give a little and understand a little. There actually has been an ethnic cleansing, which is a crime against humanity. And your book, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, really, I, I'm telling you, I thought I knew a lot about what, what had happened. But as I read your book and uncovered, and you uncovering the history, the true history of how this was carried out, the fact that there was a... Uh, it seemed to be a combination of a very systematic, almost clinical approach to developing this whole thing, com- uh, combined with an unfettered savagery in the preparation and implementation of what was going on. And an actual master plan was developed. Can we talk about the this thing about how this ethnic cleansing was actually taken up and developed yeah. by the Zionists? Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, maybe we'll go a bit, a little bit uh, back in time, just for one second to put this in the right context. I would say that. Until the 1930s, the Zionist uh, leadership in Palestine uh, did not engage too much with the question what would be the fate of the vast majority of the people in Palestine 
and the native people of Palestine, the Palestinians, they, were, they had other concerns, and they attended to them. But ever since the late 1930s, it became one of the most important issues, namely, what, how do we achieve this idea of a Jewish state while there are so many uh, Palestinians around? And it became an urgent issue for them when it became clear after the Second World War that the British mandate is coming to an end and Britain is going to withdraw its forces from Palestine. And that the international community, through the uh, agency of the United Nations, is going to try and offer a solution instead of the British mandate. This was a crucial period, and, and in that period, which in more concrete terms is more or less between February 1947, when Britain declared its intention to leave Palestine, and the 15th of May 1948, the day Israel was officially founded, in that year and a half, in that year and a half, or through that year and a half, we have very solid documentation to show the, uh, how the Zionist leadership set uh, on this question, sort of pondered within a small group of decision makers, how to uh, deal with this demographic issue, namely the presence of so many Palestinians in what they saw as the future Jewish state. And it took time for them to find a way to do it, but eventually when they have defined precisely the space in which they want to have the Jewish state. The reason that they had to define the space was that they had a secret agreement with the Judeans that not the whole of Palestine would become Israel, that part of Palestine, that is the West Bank today, would be annexed to Jordan in return for a very minimal Jordanian resistance in 1948. But the rest was to be Israel. And in that part, which is almost 80% of Palestine, you had, uh, as far as the Zionist leaders were concerned, too many Palestinians. And around March, April 1948, eventually the pondering ended, the tactical debates uh, came to, to a close, and the people with the power to decide in the Zionist movement made a conscious decision to get rid of the Palestinians in what in the area that would become the Jewish state, namely 80% of Palestine. And for that reason, they prepared a master plan called Plan D, because there were earlier drafts of that plan, which divided Palestine into areas. And in each area, a different military unit or brigade uh, operated with direct orders to get rid of the Palestinian population. The, the operation started three months before the British left, and that's why the British are accountable for some of it, because they were watching as most of the towns of Palestine were ethnically cleansed by the Jewish forces, and they did nothing to stop it, although they were obliged to do it under the charter of the mandate they have received from the League of Nations after the First World War. The other half of the people, which was mostly the people in the countryside, were ex expelled after uh, Britain left Palestine and Israel was declared. There was an attempt by the Arab world to try and stop it while sending troops on the 15th of May uh, into, into Palestine, but they sent uh, a relatively small number of troops and they had their own agendas. And uh, apart from few cases, they were unable to stop the ethnic cleansing until it just petered out because the Israelis were exhausted around the end of 1948, and it left out of the one million Palestinians who lived in what became Israel, about 100,000 were left because 
frankly speaking, I don't think the Israeli army had the energy and the inertia to complete the job. Mm-hmm. Let me remind listeners that you're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and we're talking today with Ilan Pape. Ilan's a professor of history at Exeter College in Britain, and he's the author of numerous books on Palestine and the Middle East, including The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Well, let's dig a little bit deeper into this, because I want people to understand the particularity here. And again, as I said, the, the immensity of the savage attacks. I mean, I was stunned by this. And, and, you know, if you could just talk a little bit about this, this idea that when we talk about it's a war crime, a crime against humanity, that there's a content to ethnic cleansing. And people don't know, for instance, that there were some cases where they poisoned the uh, water supply of whole villages with typhoid, you know, the rapes, the mass executions. If you could give people a sense, just pick one example or something and tell us a little deeper about what actually happened. Let me explain the logic of it. Basically, generals, who supervise an act of ethnic cleansing are content with people leaving forever the places. Namely, if they can intimidate you enough to leave your house, they would be uh, pleased. They won't necessarily chase you and kill it. It's not genocide in the sense there was no idea of terminating the people, but just dispossessing them, right? Uh, However, it's a bit like the Gaza Strip today. Palestine is, is a human habitat, and you can't always do it that way. And quite a lot of people resist. People don't want to leave a home that they lived for centuries, if not a millennium. So if, if there were the smallest resistance to uh, uh, the order to evict uh, with, and these people who were evicted knew that the moment they leave the house, the house would be detonated and their village or the neighborhood would be flattened. The smallest uh, token of resistance, the response to this was very, very brutal. And sometimes it was not just the uh, massacring people because they resisted. In, in some cases, people were massacred because of bad planning by the Israeli army. The idea was always to leave one flank of a neighborhood or a village open so that the people could be chased out of there. But in some cases, the Israelis themselves closed the places from four flanks. And then they found the people in there. And the military orders show very clearly that, especially when you have a concentration of a young man, and remember our definition of young men in 48, anyone above the age of 10, Israel has nothing to do, doesn't know what to do with them, and sometimes the order to slaughter came just for the fact that people were maybe even wanted to run away, to run away, but were unable. And that reminds me a little bit of Gaza today. Now, the specific uh, issue you're talking about, it's very interesting. There was the, the Israeli army had a kind of a chemical unit that experimented with all kinds of things, uh, including biological uh, warfare. And in two cases, it wasn't used extensively, one should say. It was used in Akka because Akka uh, resisted, and uh, it was uh, injected, typhoid was injected into, into the water. This, I say, on the basis of the report of the Red Cross from, uh, from Akka. This is not something that Palestinian sources invented. And some, as I show in the book, some Israelis were willing to admit this many, many, many years ago to more decent people with some conscientious, more conscientious and maybe with some moral uh, problems with it. The other attempt was in Gaza, interestingly enough, but the Egyptian army fought these people and they were tried and imprisoned uh, for trying to inject these biological agents. Maybe it was not typhoid, I don't remember which particularly disease they wanted to inject into the water 
of Gaza. It's the margins of brutality. It's not the main thing that the Israelis did. But you can see how easily you can, once you dehumanize the whole population, the distance between just, and I say it in quoted uh, commas, of course, just shooting them to brutally killing them is not very far. Mm-hmm. And that just shooting them was actually carried out pretty regularly, right? Yeah, oh, definitely. Shooting over the head, first of all, to make them run away, or uh, executing several people in each village to make sure that the flight will be complete. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to dig into something else because it's there's a point here, too, where you talked about, you said, after the Holocaust, it would seem that it would be difficult, if not impossible, to conceal large-scale crimes against humanity. Yet, the quandary here is yet, no one has ever really, you know, paid much attention about what happened to the Palestinian people and what continues to happen to them. Yes, it's an amazing, it's an amazing uh, story in a way. You know, when people in Israel uh, say to me, but can you compare what happened to the Palestinians with what happened to people in, in Cambodia or in Rwanda or in, uh, nowadays in Iraq and in Syria? And I say, no, I'm sure that there are cases in history and there are cases today which in terms of number of people killed is far worse than what's happening in Palestine. But I said, but we know about these places and we condemn them and we bring, eventually, we bring the criminals to court and we boycott these places. We, we do not accept uh, these uh, states within the community of civilized nations. But especially we know about it. And I said, this is something that was hidden. This is a crime that was hidden from the world. And I think the most important part of this kind of fabrication about what happened is not so much that the Israelis were selling a narrative that said, with this absurd idea, the one million people left voluntarily, as if this is at all possible, or this absurd idea that when they came to Palestine, it was empty. As I, you know, I once said, to a teacher of mine back in high school, if the country was empty, who are the people who you say left voluntarily? And uh, he was very angry with this <laughs> question. But uh, coming back to the issue, the, the best way of describing it is, is to talk to Palestinians who were scholars or journalists or who decided to tell the world a year or two years after 48 what happened. And no one believed them. No one believed them. People said to him, oh, it's your oriental imagination, you know. We don't believe that the three years after the Holocaust, the Jews could do such a thing to, to anyone. And this is in spite of the fact that there were quite a few foreigners on the ground when this happened. There were uh, journalists from the, from the United States. There were emissaries from the International uh, Red Cross and from the United Nations. People, you cannot hide an ethnic cleansing operation of this magnitude. But it was very easy for people to accept that this didn't happen. And I think part of the Palestinian anger and frustration that comes out every now and then in different forms is not just about the crime itself, but it's the denial of the crime. And uh, I think at least in that, and we owe a lot to the late uh, Professor Edward Said for this, because he told us in 1982 to fight more uh, fiercely against this denial. And I think we, we, are, we are succeeding. We are succeeding. We're not there yet. But for so many years, until very recently, the denial was as criminal 
as the crime itself. Let me remind listeners that you're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and we're talking today with Ilan Pape. Ilan's a professor of history at Exeter College in Britain, and he's the author of numerous books on Palestine and the Middle East, including The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Well, let's jump into that, because you are one of those people who actually has been fighting to bring out the true, the true history of what happened and what continues to happen. What is the situation of resistors like yourself? What's the situation? How significant is this movement? I mean, it's significant overall in the world. And in, in terms, I'm just wondering how many, you know, there's like a new historian movement. And you're part of that, I, I assume. But I'm wondering, do people, you know, and I know you got hit at a certain extent. People, Do people get punished for actually standing up and telling the truth there? Well, let me put it this way. First of all, I, I just recent, uh, in February this year, I published a book called The Idea of Israel, in which I describe exactly, or an answer in detail, if you want the question that you are asking. So I recommend uh, people who want to know more about it looking for this book, The Idea of Israel, in, in which I answer this question in the following way. The first thing to remember about all of this is that most dissidents in the world, if you are a dissenting voice, if you are an objector, if you are a person who fights against your government, your enemy is the regime. Your problem is the regime. The regime can throw you to jail, can uh, sack you from your job, can shoot you, can execute you. In Israel, the problem is very different. You have a problem with your own society, not just with your own state. So to begin with, the numbers of people inside the Jewish society throughout the years of Israel's existence, who are willing to challenge the basic uh, truisms and assumptions of Zionism is so minimal that I can give you all the names. And I'm talking about the last 70 years. I can give you all the names of these people. I'm sure you don't know all the names of the people demonstrated against the Vietnam War. Uh, As as much as we, we may think that America is, you know, conformist and does not rebel against its own government's policies, at least, I don't know, I'm sure nobody in America knows all the names of the people demonstrating against Vietnam. I know the names of all the people who challenged the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948 and until today. That's how wow. terrible the situation is in this respect. Now, in the, what does it, and I why it's an answer to your question. It means that the state itself does not have to, to deal with us. The society deals with us. And my a personal case is one that sort of illustrates this. I was not uh, expelled from the state, or I was not harassed by the state itself. The university in which I work made sure that I would find it intolerable to continue to teach with opinions like the ones I have, and I had to leave the university and the job which I had for 25 years. So that was the punishment. It's a very low punishment compared to what Palestinians would suffer in similar uh, situations. But that's what happens to dissident, dissident voices in Israel. They are so marginalized and boycotted and uh, not heard that actually the government does not have to deal with them. I have a feeling that things are changing for the better, by the way. Mm-hmm. I think the BDS campaign, the Boycott Divestment Sanction campaign from abroad, in, in, increased the number it's still a very it's a drop in the sea, but increase the numbers. Maybe I don't know the names anymore, which is a good sign. <laughs> increase the numbers of people who who are dissidents, who are anti-Zionists. And the first indication for this is the first time the government is trying to pass laws that will enable it to deal with dissident, dissenting voices like this, which is a good sign. It means it becomes a phenomenon. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Uh, the vast majority of the Israeli Jews not only support 
this barbaric operation in Gaza, they want the army to do even worse. They are a, a bit uh, uh, irritated with the army, what they think is a sort of self-restraint of the army in dealing with the population of Gaza. So in relation to this, I want to uh, just very quickly visit this. The, in relation to the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, that actually gives you heart today is, is what it sounds like. But that's not just, not just in terms of increasing the amount of resistors inside um, Israel, and, but also in terms of internationally. That has an, in, you look at that as a very significant movement in the world, huh? Yes, I do. I, I really think so. I, I think that it's true that Israel can probably also exist without a moral foundation and without moral or ethical uh, support. But I think the, the one has an influence in the other. We saw it in the case of apartheid South Africa. Namely, even if cynical governments in the world would say, and this is not true just about Israel, uh, we have our own sort of national interests, so we can turn, uh, you know, we, we can sort of ignore what we don't want to see. The moment there is a massive moral movement that is abhorred by what's going on on the ground, eventually it also affects politics. And with the moment and, and economics, and the moment it affects politics and economics, it's a different game. And then the balance of power is not between those who have all these mighty weapons and those who don't have any weapons at all. It's between people who still want to be still craving some sort of legitimacy uh, and the danger that they would become a pariah state. And I think this is what the BDS is pointing to: the nonviolent possibilities in bringing peace and justice uh, to Palestine. Let me remind listeners that you're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and we're talking today with Ilan Pape. Ilan's a professor of history at Exeter College in Britain, and he's the author of numerous books on Palestine and the Middle East, including The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Now, Ilan, in a certain way, it does pose a moral imperative to people, I think, in terms of people actually having to take a stand. And this is something I want to return to. This will bring us back, and we only have a couple minutes, but it'll bring us back to where we began, you know, in terms of you talking about the framework that the, that the Israeli state insists upon. And, you know, and it brings you right back to the Holocaust to a certain extent. And as I mentioned, earlier, everything, the Zionists always justify everything they do on the basis of the Holocaust. And it's the idea that what happened to the Jewish people should should never happen again, never again. And never again is not said in the sense of it should never again happen to people anywhere in the world, but basically never again to us. And that allows us to do whatever the hell we want to the Palestinian people and anywhere else. There's a morality, a whole different morality that needs to come into play here. And I thought, I'll tell you, it's posed up against a lot of a lot of things that really people need to think about. And I was thinking of this quote from Bob Avakian that says, after the Holocaust, the worst thing that has happened to Jewish people is the state of Israel, which poses this thing of people's people have been sucked into this very immoral view and stand in relation to the people of the world. Yes, and again, I'm, I'm sorry to try. I'm not trying to sell my, my books are selling well, so I'm not trying to sell them. But in the last book, uh, The Idea of Israel, I have a whole chapter on this, in which I call the Nazification of the Palestinian Question. This is not only justifying, you're right, they justify what they do in the name of the Holocaust, but for themselves they justify it by claiming that actually they continue to fight the Nazis after the Holocaust in Palestine itself. And this comes back to the issues we talked about. We began talking about the dehumanization that allows them to, to, to uh, not to blink an eye when they kill children. This is exactly that. And I think that an insistence of a universal message from the Holocaust, from any genocide, not just the Holocaust, a universal message from any genocide, including the Holocaust, is the basis for, for a solution 
in Israel and Palestine. The, the two are connected. Mm-hmm. It's exactly this uh, idea that I was talking about in the article you quoted, that you have to use the same moral measure to examine everyone in the Middle East, including Israel. And the moment people in the Arab world would see that, which they haven't seen until that, that the Western world is willing to judge Israel the way it judges Egypt, Bashar al-Assad, the uh, Islamist uh, movements in Iraq, the moment they would think that everyone is judged in the same way, they would be much more willing to resist the other uh, more uh, oppressive phenomenon and listen to the world and maybe even seek its help. But when the world has this double standards, where one particular political outfit has a license to do whatever he wants, and all the rest are being judged differently, no wonder that people in the Middle East do not look up to America or to the West as a beacon of enlightenment, progress, and humanity. And, and that leaves our area in a very, very difficult situation that only a genuine solution for the Palestine question would help it to move forward to a much better future. All right, Ilan Pape, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to get your book as soon as I can, and we'll have you back to talk about that too, okay? <laughs> All right. Fantastic. All right, Ilan, take care, man. Thank you very much. Sure, thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye now. You're listening to The Michael Slate Show. We've, we've just been talking with Ilan Pape, professor of history at Exeter University in, in Britain, author of Pal- uh, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, and a historian who dares to and insists on telling the truth in the face of power. You've been listening to The Michael Slate Show, and I'm your host and producer, Michael Slate. I want to thank my assistant producer, Henry Carson. I want to thank my production assistant, Jeff Pryor, my engineer for today, Teddy Robinson, and all of you for tuning in. If you want to write to me, you can at michaelslate at redfuture.com. Again, that's michaelslate at redfuture.com. And if you want to follow me, you can do so on Facebook or Twitter. But again, as I always caution you, please be very careful that you don't spook me when that happens, because I'm a very nervous cat, all right? And so do it in a really well-controlled way and a friendly way. All right, as we uh, get ready to go out, there's one thing I wanted to read from Bob Avakian's uh, book, Basics, and it's something that I think is really important in relation to everything we've been talking about today, including the whole method that people like Ilan Pape um, implement in their lives, all right, and what difference it makes. And this is from Avakian's book, Basics, and it's uh, chapter 5, and it's the 11th quote there. There is a place where epistemology and morality meet. There is a place where you have to stand and say, It is not acceptable to refuse to look at something or to refuse to believe something because it makes you uncomfortable. And it is not acceptable to believe something just because it makes you feel comfortable. Again, that's from Bob Avakian's book, Basics. All right, so check that out. And you can find all the information you need to know about basics on the site revcom.us. And you know what else? You can also follow all the things that are going on in the world and in this country, including what's happening in Palestine today. You can follow updates, analysis, all of that, and that's at revcom.us. Go there, check it out. You will be blown away by what you find there, all right? We're going to go out now with a very special song, and it's called We Will Not Go Down, Gaza, all right? And it's by Michael Hart. And I'm going to play as much of this song as I can because it's really, really a very moving song, and especially today when we're all looking at the, the massive war crimes and crimes against humanity that the Zionist state of Israel is unleashing on Gaza. So here it is. We will not go down Gaza. A blinding flash of white light 
lit up the sky over Gaza tonight. People running for cover, not knowing whether they're dead or alive. They came with their tanks and their planes, with ravaging fiery flames, and nothing remains. Just a voice rising up in the smoky haze. We will not go down in the night without a fight. You can burn up our mosques and our homes and our schools, but our spirit will never die. We will not go down in Gaza tonight. Women and children alike Murdered and massacred night after night While the so-called leaders of countries afar Debated on who's wrong or right But their powerless words were in vain And the bombs fell down like acid rain through the tears and the blood and the pain You can still hear that voice through the smoky haze We will not go down in the night without a fight You can burn up our mosques and our homes and our schools But our spirit will never die We will not Good night.